Hi, I'm Minka, and you're listening to The Sand Space. We are the first South African climbing podcast, we think. And we're super excited to talk to South African climbers about climbing and also some of the tough stuff. Stick around. We are committed to releasing an episode on the last Wednesday of every month and then possibly a special edition in between. End your month on a high note with us. Hey Sanders, it's Amy here. After a three-month break, we're back. Kind of. Before I get on to this month's episode, I'd like to reflect for a moment, if you wouldn't mind indulging me. I'm somewhat in disbelief that we've made 15 whole episodes. I'm really proud of what we've achieved, especially considering that in the middle of all of it, our team went from being all Josie-based to all over the place-based. Somehow we weathered the changes and we kept delivering. Of course, things always change and things have changed. We decided to take a pause when Minka had shoulder surgery, and this gave us some time to think about what we've been doing and what it will look like going forward. And the truth is that it'll look pretty different, for me at least. It's been a really epic 18-month journey, for most of which I've not been in South Africa and not been climbing with you amazing humans. Each episode has been bittersweet for me, if I'm honest, as I get a glimpse into the community I miss so much. So, it's really hard to say this, but I'm leaving this end space. Not just because of the FOMO, but because it needs attention from me that I just can't give it. But I still really believe in the vision that Minka, Matthew and I saw all those months ago. A South African climbing community celebration, an archive, a platform to share your stories and use your voice. I believe this vision is being achieved, and it will carry on after I'm gone. I'm still around for a few months, but come January next year, there'll be someone else in the background keeping things going. It might be Minka taking on all the load, or maybe it'll be one of you that'll help her. On that note, if you want to join the Sand Space team, please drop us a DM. Alright, let's get on to this episode. I think the show notes explain the gist, but I have to add that you listening right now should plan an outdoor adventure to the Ponderland Wild Coast. It's a place really close to my heart, it's the most beautiful area and it's under threat. And the best way to help the community is by ecotourism. So whether you want to climb, hike, abseil or horse ride, contact Stephen to set you up. Everyone should see Cathedral Rock at least once in their lives and I'm really glad to say it's one of the last places I visited before I immigrated. So I hope you enjoy the episode. We start off getting to know Steve and Katie, but if you want to dive into the rescue action, just skip ahead about 30 minutes. That's all from me, Sanders. It's been a real pleasure. Today is the 21st of September. Welcome back to an episode of The Sand Space. Today we are joined by Katie and Steve. Hello, guys. Hello, Minka. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. So I have um, prepared a list of questions for today, but we can, it's most likely going to go on to a tangent and just chat, really. Um, Why don't we start with a little bit about the two of you? Steve, why don't you kick us off? Uh, Yeah, my name is Steve. I'm an avid rock climber, uh, trad climber, and um, have been quite involved in the climbing community over the last few years with the Mountain Club of South Africa and getting into the search and rescue world with the Mountain Club. Um, And I think above all of that, I'd say that I'm just an outdoor enthusiast. And that's what kind of brings us all together, I guess. 
You're also the reason why I'm on the MCSA committee. Yes, <laughs> you and many other people who I've co-opted and gotten involved Very <laughs> against your will, perhaps. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Hi, I'm Katie, short for Katerina. Uh, I'm a personal trainer and I currently study nutrition. So I love the outdoors and spending time with fitness, workouts, with my border collie and going out with friends. Where about do you see yourself within the climbing community? I'm an experienced sport and trad climber. Um, going forward, like to be with Mountain Search and Rescue. And I've also done a few competitions and climbed all over South Africa. Like competition climbing? Yeah, I did one competition cool <laughs> that's a like a different ball game mm. every time i go and watch competition climbing i cannot imagine how that pressure what that pressure must feel like every time there's like hundreds of people shouting at you go 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 <laughs> and it's just all you have to do is bump a left yeah. or you know yeah. move a right foot and it's just so much heavier because there's all of this pressure yeah. not just your belay saying come on you can do it exactly <laughs> Steve, how, where would you say you fit in in the climbing community? So I, I, I like to get quite involved in things when I have um, time permitting and that, that, that brings me into certain things like the Mountain Club. Um, uh, I was chairman of that Joburg section for a few years up until this year um, and joining Mountain Search and Rescue. So I, I, I like to be very involved in what's going on um, and... Uh, yeah, I think I think I like to see myself as a, as a lifetime member of the climbing community. It's one of those um, clubs where once you join, you are sort of in it for life. But uh, um, yeah, it's 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 a wonderful community of people to be in, and I'm really lucky to to have that as part of my life. So I think more than just being in the climbing community, I'm I'm a stoked member of it, and I'm glad to have found it as a tribe of people. So that's my. I guess that's my position in the community as a proud member. How old were you when you came in? I was quite a quite a late starter. Um, so I got into climbing when I moved back from the wild coast in the Eastern Cape, where I had a very sort of outdoor adventurous life and needed to supplement that uh, with something. When I moved back to Joburg, and climbing seemed like the best uh, outlet, and that was only that was 2016, 2015, 2016. So not that long ago. Um, but I have jumped into the deep end mm. and being available to do stuff and get involved and join the club and find groups and, and make different friendships. Um, I've kind of caught up on all that last time. But yeah, so only, only six years, but it feels like a lot longer. Yeah, that's not long at all, actually. No. Oh, South Africans? Haha, <laughs> there's my power. Um, I just need to quickly switch off my fridge. Okay. Otherwise, it's going to bother the recording. So 2015, 2016, how old are you? Uh, I was 27. I was 27. And then, we, and then I had a, a, a solid climbing partner who then moved back to Germany. And then I was out of climbing for like eight months. And then City Rock opened up. Mm. And then it was very cool, actually, because it was like, oh, great. There's people I can go. I can just go and start climbing and meeting people and getting involved. Um, and then within two years, I was in the mountain club and I'd bought a trad rack that I found very cheap, which made it very easy. <laughs> a second-hand rack. Second-hand rack, very cheap, very good price, but that was a sign. I was like, fantastic. 
this is this is what I get to do. Yeah. Yeah. You give me hope, Steve. Okay. I also started when I was quite a bit older. Yeah. Were you active like before? Um, I was an active hiker and outdoorsman. Okay. Um, and yeah, so so climbing was just a, a, a great cherry on top of adventures because, you know, you could go camping, whatever, and now you could do a whole extra activity. So I was active in that sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really nice... Um, casual progression I would mm. say it's mm. quite a demanding sport to be taking up in your late 20s yeah <laughs> but I mean Benny took it up what in his 50s or I'm, 60s I know <laughs> he took it up when he was already uh, so Benny is our current chairperson of the MCSA and he took it up after his six, no just before his 60th birthday before he retired and yeah just after his 50th birthday and but he was really fit before. So we can't let this misconception steer was, us in the yeah. wrong way. He was, uh, I think he was a cyclist. He was, yeah. And a, Very a, good cyclist, yeah. 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 So he was already, his. that's the calves that he needs for stemming. He's already <laughs> got them. He doesn't have to work them up yet. But I think that you, if you get into the climbing game at, at this age, you have got a big bonus in the head game and maturity side of things and understanding your own position in the sport and the fact that it is your own personal sport, not a competitive thing, not to get caught up in that whole world. You're in it for what you want to be in. You're confident in yourself and your own abilities and everyone supports that. Mm. And that's fine. It's fantastic. Mm. So no one is looking like, oh, you're way too old to be getting into this. Like, that's rubbish. One of the first ladies I climbed with in trad, Ulrika, is in her 70s she climbs like a badass yeah Yeah. she crushes every time I go to a meet with her I'm just like "Mm, goals yeah (laughs) yeah and then you pop out to random sport crags or on hikes and there's Ulrika trudging along moving along still doing her thing yeah so yeah how old are you when you started Katie uh I was in matric so 2012 that's when I started climbing at Wonderwall there at German Kaisens and then I met uh, one of my earliest climbing mentors and we went climbing every weekend. So during the week it was indoors and then outdoors on the weekend. So I started with uh, sport climbing and then after five years I transitioned into trad. Uh, and that was a lot of fun because I loved the aspects of hiking there and then climbing. Oh, there's another pitch. Okay, what do you do? And thunderstorms on the way back we always run out of time so it was a lot of fun <laughs> which do you prefer sport or trad good question <laughs> I, don't know. I like trad more because it has more things that can go wrong and i like the challenge of the routes that you got to find yourself and taking all your gear okay where sport is just really simple you got your quick draws and you just you know the route okay there i'm going up clip 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 yeah there yeah so yeah I find um, without all the trad gear and the adventure of it sport climbing you can really focus on the movement because you have uh, more brain capacity you don't have to worry is this placed well is that do I, am I going to have enough gear for this to build a stance or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be as you clip the quick draw you can just focus on that uh, the pure movement um, but I also prefer trad for mm-hmm. the like the adventure of it mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, with sport it's nice. You can you can also climb till you fall, which is a notion that doesn't really exist in trad. In fact, it's the opposite of what you want to do in trad. Mm. In sport, you can push till you physically fall off the wall, mm. and to know your boundaries in that sense is really amazing. Whereas in trad, your boundaries are much more mental. I find, and 
you know, carrying you through bits where you don't feel safe or don't feel comfortable, but you have to get through it because you have to. But you're not climbing till you literally peel off the rock. I mean, it happens, obviously, but you avoid that. Mm. <laughs> and in sport climbing, you can just go for it. When I went on my first um, trad clinic with Benny and he explained this, you don't want a fall concept. It blew my mind mm. because as is coming from sport climbing, you you think this you need to be comfortable with falling to be able to push yourself and that whole idea. And when Benny told me, no, you you don't fall on gear, mm. it took me quite a long time to reconcile myself with the change in that kind of mentality. Yeah. Yeah, the, the leader doesn't fall. Mm. Well, I did it the exact opposite way when I learned trad climbing. Oh, yeah? Because my friend told me, well, you need to know that your gear is properly placed. So I thought, okay, I'm going to let go. Boom. It, it sticked. It always sticked. Oh, but yeah? <laughs> my friend hated me for taking falls at random times because he had to be ready all the time. But that made me confident that my placement was uh, holding. Good place. Has the placement ever come out? No. <laughs> Amazing. Um, all right. Steve, you also engage with the community on a, mm, I don't want to say a, maybe a professional level, but definitely a business level. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pondo experience? So uh, I've started working in the Eastern Cape of South Africa back in 2012 and 2013. Uh, and subsequently moved down to the wild coast um, to an area called Mpondoland. It's in the northern part of the what was the Trans Sky, close to the KZN border. And uh, I got heavily involved in the community there doing education projects, infrastructural development projects, um, using my architectural background to run projects and make things happen. And that part of the community is... Uh, well, not that part of the community, that part of the coastline is under threat of mining and, and big destructive developments and all of these things that come with, you know, um, beautiful environmental areas opening up to outside development. And so I've been working with that community to help develop um, ecotourism as one of their chosen alternatives to mining for sustainable income and that sort of a thing. So I started the Pondo experience uh, along with the local guy down there and then recently a friend of mine joined up two years ago to help out as well. And we run uh, multi-day hikes down the wild coast where you are guided by locals, you are hosted by locals, you interact with the locals, they take you to their spots, you learn some of the language, you do all of the things that you don't norm normally experience when you just walk through a place. It's very much about integration um, and the hospitality of the people in that area and what they have to offer. And so the Pondo experience is really about um, setting up people on these hikes, um, partnering them with guides, uh, tailor-making different trips to suit their interests. So if you want to do bush camping, if you want to do horse riding, if you want to do what we're now getting into is abseiling and climbing as well, um, and also cultural immersions. Um, we've just had a lady come down from the States where she just spent 13 days um, going from village to village and then experiencing what it's like to spend a day in the life of an Mpondo family. And uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's what the, the Pondo experience is. It's about um, facilitating and helping grow ecotourism, but very much from the perspective of the community driving it and not from, 
outside people coming in and wanting to change it. I know it sounds almost ironic because I am from the outside, but um, I'm doing this all under the mandate and direction of the community on the ground who are running it. And they make the choices, they make the programs of how they want to run it and stuff. And I am helping them in terms of uh, this is what tourists are looking for and what tourists are interested in and how we can bring those tourists in and do it. And so it's kind of like the both of us working together, the community and myself and my business partner. Amazing. Yeah. How, how long have you been doing this? So we actually officially registered the company back in 2021, just as COVID was sort of coming out of it. But I've been running these, these sorts of projects since 2013. I've been hosting volunteers in the area. I've been introducing people to schools. I've been introducing people to the hikes, to the tour guides, organizing trips, huge variety of projects, but it's it's been formalized as of 2021, early 2021, yeah. And are your, what do you call them, your guests? Or yeah, your clients? yeah, guests, clients, yeah. Um, mostly from overseas or mostly South Africans? No, it's, yeah, mostly South Africans, yeah. Cape Town, Johannesburg, and then Durban, yeah. Um, but Joburg is actually where I can get most of my input from because I know the communities of people here and mm. the word of mouth works more effectively from Joburg. Um, but, yeah, there is, there is quite a big drive now for um, foreigners to come through because they are incredibly interested in these types of environments and what it's like to live in them and experience them. Whereas in South Africa, there still seems to be a bit of a disconnect from, but is it safe to be there? Is the water okay? Is the food okay? But what if I can't get, you know, there are all these worries that come out of nowhere, <laughs> but it's like these historical worries that people seem to have. Whereas in the States or you're coming from Europe, everyone's just super excited to experience something different mm. and they'll travel halfway across the world for it. But South Africans... Um, can sometimes be a little bit trickier. <laughs> Fair, I mean, South yeah. Africans um, are quite, I don't want to say fresh out of an era where we've been brainwashed <laughs> with these worries. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that takes a lot of unlearning. Yeah. And generationally so. Absolutely. If I told my parents, I would love to do an experience like that, but if I told my mom that I was going to do that, she would organize another intervention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah. How do you guys know one another? Well, I started with Martin Search and Rescue, and then, I don't know, he was there on those meets, and, yeah, we wanted to go hiking. Yeah, and then I think I found out you had a border collie, and that yes, was great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then when I was putting together this, uh, this trip, um, Katie had wanted to come down to the wild coast a few times, but had never been able to quite line it up. I think there was, there was definitely that? one time there was, you know, it was, it was a hike or maybe it was postponed. I'm not sure. But anyway, Katie was then on my list of people who I could go back to, you know? Okay. Oh, Katie showed interest. Cool. Doing this trip. Boom. Okay. She was keen. Tell know? us about this trip, the, the trips that we were about to talk about. Oh, so this was um, a trip to go and climb Cathedral Rock along the wild coast of South Africa in the Eastern Cape. And it's a pretty isolated um, ocean stack. So an ocean stack is a separate piece of rock from the mainland. Um, geologically speaking, usually comprised of more weather-resistant rock than the mainland, hence why it's still there. Um, but 
it is very isolated. So it's about 60 kilometers south of the KZN Eastern Cape border as the crow flies, but it can take from Joburg up to three days to get there. I mean, Katie, how long? It took us how many days to get down three there? Three days. And we three had days. One day. Yeah, one, one day stuck in, two days stuck in Kokstad because we had a double blowout puncture on the way down because we got there too late. Oh my. But anyway, it's very difficult to get there. Okay. So from Lusikisiki, you still have to drive to Tutuini Valley. From there, it's a 7K hike. And this is the closest way to get there that I know of. Um, and it's, it's about a 100 meter high ocean stack, which just purely by nature of its isolation and the fact that you have to get from the mainland onto the stack, which is a huge cliff descent, makes it quite a unique climb. Um, I'd seen it for many, many times walking past it, wondering if it was climbable, and then saw in an MTSA journal from 2014 that friends of mine who actually know had gone and done it. So that was great. Got to chat to them, get some beta. And then, yeah, used my own networks and... Um, village arrangements to get closer to it, spend a night there, and then go and, and hike in and climb it. It's only about two pitches of climbing, um, but it is a big adventurous climb and a lot of unknowns. So with all that said and done, it, it de definitely can be classified as sort of expedition level climbing because mm -hmm. it's very far away from anything and you have to be self-supported. Um, we opted to spend multiple days there so that we could set up safety lines, get everyone down because we had a lot of experience on the team, but we also had a lot of inexperience on the team um, in the group of people going. So let's talk you know. about how, um, so it's quite a mission to get there. Mm. Hiking, all of that kind of stuff. If you mm -hmm. want to find out how to do that, contact Steve. Mm -hmm. But let's start this discussion at the top, looking like at, on the cliff, looking onto the stack. Mm. How do you get from the cliff to the bottom of the stack? So there are two ways. There's one way that the local fishermen do it, which is a super slippery and grassy, chossy descent down very treacherous rock, which I think if you... Half of it. Yeah, we 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 so the experienced group, myself, Katie, and Gert, we did that route down on the first day to check it out and see if other people could do it, and we decided to then go for option two, which was a new option, um, which I'd prepared for, which was to set up a fixed line, a static line, from the top of the cliff, and essentially set up what we called a highway, which was to get all the way down with three belays. Um, to get to the bottom of the mainland cliff. Sorry, with what belays? Rebelays. Rebelays where you re-anchor a line. So you have your main belay, your main anchor point, and then you redirect it through another point. Okay. Um, and so you can kind of have one line, but with multiple points. So we set up a 200 meter static line, used up every centimeter of it. I think at the bottom, it literally just almost touched the sea at the bottom. <laughs> it was perfect. And that was split into three abseils, some handrails, various things. And we could just descend that all the way down, use it to get to the bottom. And then if we needed to, we could ascend up and out on that same rope. But we then set up Separate, I should say, Katie set these up actually. I think okay. you set up and had the fixed line handrails going up the snotty, grassy descent. So we could come down the highway and climb up out the descent using handrails and stuff. So we set up this like really nice loop to make things quite easy. And mm -hmm. the idea being, like, we've got that, that's set up, that's in place, we have our highway, 
we're good to go. Because the big challenge of this climb is not the trad climbing itself. It's the fact that you have to time it with the tides. You have a time limit on the stack itself. You can't be there for too long. It's I think it was four hours to get up and down. And when you have two climbing teams totaling six people, that's a lot going on. Mm. Yeah. What happens if you don't make the time? You, uh, you can wait for the next six hours for the tide to go down again. Um, or you can set up a, a rope to abseil you down, reach the fixed line on the other side, get hella wet but stay on a rope. Mm. Um, and then transfer in the tide now in the tide swishing yeah. swishing out so that would be like a, a last resort mm. you never want to be stuck on a rope when you're above water yeah um, but should and you between need to, and between two a rock and, and a hard place yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a it's a gap of about five meters with like a huge block in the middle that you can use to walk across okay. so you could step on that block, mm. stay connected to a rope, and then transfer onto the other rope. Okay. Um, or you could even be, you know, I mean, there's multiple ways you could do it, but but that was never the intention. We wanted to get across, do it all in four hours, and um, yeah, if it was bad, we would have stayed till the next tide, mm. in a sense. Yeah. And as far as timing is concerned, would that mean that you would be doing? the crossover and ascent back home in the dark? We No. So, uh, I mean, the, the low tides are all at different times, as you know, throughout the day, throughout the season, it, it shifts, but it's very predictable and you have very known times of when it is. And the idea being you want to cross two hours before low tide and you want to come back two hours after, high, after low tide. And that just so happened to coincide on the days we wanted to do it. There was planning that went into it, but the days that it narrowed down onto were we needed to leave camp at like 4 a.m., get to the mountain and across. We had to all be across by like 6 a.m. Mm. Um, and then we had to be back across by 10 a.m. So it was an early, what you would call an alpine start, even though nowhere near any alpine environments, but that sort of early start, um, light gear, everything set up. You wake up, you go. And, and how far it. how far was your camp from the the start from the fixed lines? Did you are Not you hiking far. in with your harness and racked, or are you hiking in with a pack? So we uh, I'd identified a campsite at Mambomkulu River, which is only about one and a half k's from Cathedral Rock. Um, very nice area, fresh water set up very nicely for camping, even had some caves, which we unfortunately couldn't sleep in because they were quite wet. Um, but no, we, you, you rigged up like you would for a trad climb at camp. We go through, we already had gear stashed at, at, um, at another cave nearby. Um, so we didn't have to carry lots of stuff. Um, so we yeah, arrived early, then we put our harness and stuff on there mm. and then started the descent. Mm. Got going. Okay. Um, Katie, what made you excited to join this expedition? Um, I think climbing with some new people was the exciting part and going somewhere where I've never climbed before is always a good motivator. So I decided to go along with it and really push myself to see where my trad skills can take me. What kind of expeditions had you done before this? So I've done a few in 2013 with Warriors, which is South Africa's most extreme gap year. 
it was for seven months and we did a lot through South Africa. We did like crocodile river rafting trips and um, Mozambique scuba diving and uh, adventure challenges and mountain biking, all, all of it together in the outdoor world. So that was really fun. And as far as climbing, climbing expeditions? Not in the sense of this trip, okay. but I did some climbing trips with friends before, yes. Okay. But only like to Bourbon and White and Flossy and these uh, smaller mountains. Not so... Uh, it wasn't as terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is out there. I mean, the, was the first ascent in twenty fourteen? I mean, no one no one knows when the first ascent was. The first recorded and written down ascent was twenty fourteen. Two trad lines were opened on it, but there was a cairn of rocks up top there before those guys even did it. So there's people know that some people have been up there and they'd even been. And this was we all knew about this and we discussed this, but a lady had already climbed it free solo back in 2007. No. And on her descent, a handheld broke and she fell to her death. <laughs> yeah. What's her name? Um, I can it. give it to you now. It is written in here. Okay. But um, so it had been climbed before and then also because the, there's lots of fishermen who are down there, um, there's nothing to suggest that in the last however many centuries of people living there that someone didn't get gutsy enough to just scale this thing. Because mm. you can scramble up and make your way up. Um, as I say, the climbing grade only maxes out at 16. But if you were to scramble and find an easy way up and around, you might be able to get up there. Mm. But no one is really sure of it. You know. Okay. How many people were in your team? Were you, you were six climbers. And were there other people as well? There were seven of us in total. So we had a team of four and a team of three. Um, and then we had another guy on the mainland who wasn't uh, an experienced climber who then just went for a hike and looked after Katie's dog. Oh, did your dog go with? Yeah. Oh, Dogs lovely. are welcome there. <laughs> <laughs> did he or she? He. Did he make the whole hike and everything? Yeah. My dog has his own backpack. He carries his own food and water and blanket. I mean, he's old enough. He's a working dog. He can do it. <laughs> I carry the rest. That's fair. <laughs> and then you can have a great time. <laughs> have you found something? Yeah, the lady is a solo climber, Ilsa Bodema, fell to her death in July 2004 from under the rectangular roof on the second pitch of the left face. Her accident was caused by a handhold which broke. And you're reading out of? The MCSA Journal from 2014. So I even went and spoke to Gavin, who was the rescuer, who went and did the recovery on that incident and wrote up this article and I had long chats with him about it and with Andre, another one of the members who was on this team. Um, so we were actually fully prepared as to what we might expect. Mm. Um, but... Nothing can actually fully prepare you for anything, which I think is the lesson. Okay. Mm. Okay, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Mm. What are the... Katie, will you tell us about the different routes on the ocean stack? There are only two routes that we were planning to climb. So mm -hmm. I was climbing in Team 2 with Mono and Nathan, Route 1. Uh, I came a little bit off route, obviously on pitch two, but I was supposed to do a traverse towards the left and then climb up and I ended up 
uh, going more straight up than planned. Yeah, there's actually a, in the in the image which was part of our briefing with everyone, and when we sat down and looked at the route. Um, so what I'm looking at now is a photograph of Cathedral Rock, which has two lines that go up at showing the different routes. Katie was climbing this yellow line, which is a route that on these diagonal steps goes very far left up the blocks. Um, and then Katie... For anyone at home that know, wants to follow along, we're on page 110 of the journal accessible to members yes. from um, of the MTSA. Yeah, it's journal 117 from 2014. And then this is where this image has a bit of a mistake because this other route, which... I was fully aware of because it was the route I was doing. It mm. shows this line going up, but it's actually behind the block. Oh. So when Katie was climbing, and then uh, you know, my assumption is that you were like, "Well, there's a route there, so I'm going to go up here. This looks good." Yeah. But that route was behind. So what okay. she was doing was a first ascent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start from <laughs> the bottom. You were with Manu and who Nathan. and Nathan, who led so tried climbing. Um, you had a full rack, I'm assuming? Yes. Nuts, hexes, cams, all of it? Yes, all of it. Okay, because you didn't, I'm sure you didn't really know what kind of pro to expect, so you take it all? Yeah, they, again, in this journal, because it was written up by very experienced people, they give you a kind of selection of things as a minimum that you should have. Mm. Great. Uh, we kind of took that into account, but we always then rack up our own when we're there and looking at it because mm. you don't know what has changed and what, you know, you might not do the exact route that someone did. Mm. So if someone says, take these hexes and these nuts, like don't listen to them unless they really know and they're pointing with a laser where you're going to put that stuff. Like mm. you need to be confident in your own thing. Mm. So yeah. Okay, so we have Katie was in party one. Two. In party two. Steve was in party one. Did you guys start climbing at the same time about? Yeah. So you're at the yeah. base of your roots. Who led your first pitch, Katie? Mano climbed first. The first pitch. Okay. Mano second, and I was last. Okay. In first stance route. And then I would take over and climb second pitch Okay. to the top. And what was your team dynamics like, um, Steve? So we had myself and Gert um, as the sort of leaders of the team of four. Gert is also on the mountain search and rescue team. So a very experienced guy. And then we had my friend Warwick Preddy, who I've climbed on many trips with before, a uh, very capable sport climber, um, and seconded on trad a variety of times with me on different expeditions. And then we had his girlfriend, Michelle, who's also an experienced sport climber, um, but this was a very new experience for her in terms of backcountry trad climbing. Um, so we had a wide variety and range of skills between the two teams, but it was very nicely balanced and enough experience on both and capacity amongst the team. And how would, Katie, did you say pitch one went for Mane? It was easy. He wasn't challenged at all. He was just cruising up as if it was a walk in the park. <laughs> Making uh, it look easy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but Mano, uh, Nathan also climbed it really well. I mean, I also did. It was mm -hmm. really, really easy. Okay. And the grade of the first pitch? It was a 14. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty tough. Yeah, the, 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 the difficulty with it is you've got... Um, there's so much happening in these places. So when you're not used to it, and I know that uh, people feel this quite a lot, but 
the sound of crashing waves and the wind and all of these other elements which prevent you to focus as well as you do in a sort of more sterile environment. Mm. And there's a lot going on in a place like this. Mm. Um, yeah, that um, exposure becomes mm, exponential exactly, when you start adding in exactly. um, influence. You then like also that. put on top of it the ticking clock of uh, we've got to get down this whole group mm. um, and back across there unless you get stranded here for another six hours. So all of those elements are there. Um, but the first pitch went very well. It's only graded at 10 on, okay. and it's a bit of a scramble, 35 meter 10. Um, and then we ended up just sitting up, uh, you, your guys' stance was a little bit lower. Yeah. Um, and then Michelle fell on the first meter, what? Yeah, so Michelle, so even though the, so much of what we've been told about blocks being um, loose and everything the, you know the, a lot of the consensus was no the, but the, the stack itself it's it's stronger than the mainland it's good mm. but we're still very cautious of that and there ended up being a rock low down which um, came right out of place about maybe a meter off the ground oh, wow. as Michelle was climbing so like she had already taken a, a fall a hold or a, a piece a, of rock a block or? a block like that was right there on the stack okay um which we, you know, again, with experience, I think people tend to avoid certain things that look like they might fall out. Um, but, yeah, again, with all of those different stimulations going around and all of that, you know, you, you can totally understand how someone mm. could grab something that falls off very easily. And what, so she, you know. What is the procedure um, for trying to avoid... Um, like you say, with experience, you know what not to, what to look for and what to avoid. What what is the kind of is there a step by step or is there something that a guideline that people could follow? I think in a in an environment like this where you are fully aware of um, handholds being loose, um, such as in the Drakensberg as well, you then tend to climb where you're not grabbing onto holds. You are trying to use should I say, the mountain itself, the rock itself. You want to be putting your hands, palming, stemming, mm -hmm. using things that don't require you to pull on, like a handle or a jug, or anything where your forces pulling outwards or downwards could change it in some way, even shift it or move it out of place. You want to, be, if there's a boulder, you want to put your hand on top of that boulder and use the friction, push yourself up. Mm. If there's a little handhold and a boulder, I'm going to use the boulder in any way, shape, or form I can versus the handhold because um, you're just not sure of it. Then, if you are using those handholds, you need to be very sure of it. You mm. need to give it that good tug, um, a little knock, a little push to see what it looks like. And then you can never trust something 100% either. If you see a handhold and you're going to hold it, I'm never going to just crank up 100% on that thing. I'm going to be like, what are my feet like? Are they good? If this thing goes, can I recover? And those sorts of constant interrogations are happening throughout the process. Sure, that's a lot um, of mental activity it, to be digesting. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why when you're not experienced with it, it's very easy to miss on those opportunities, which mm. is, I think, what happened um, with Michelle um, at the bottom of pitch one, where she was just, you know, all those things were happening, mm. and she held something that came off quite quickly. Mm. But um, she was following and it was fine, I'm guessing. No, she, well, she hurt her ankle. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so she hurt her ankle. Um, there, there was a fair amount of... Uh, so we had two-way radios in communication as well. Um, there was also some miscommunication where Gerti was belaying, hadn't heard her call to say she was climbing. Mm. So when she started and fell, 
it was just exacerbated by the fact that there was more slack in the rope that there should have been. We were quite surprised when we suddenly found out she'd started climbing. And then, um, yeah, so then it was really just about getting her up to the stance and, and unless, well, there was a chance we would have to go down mm. and sort it out there. But then she rallied, absolute trooper. Um, she got herself up with quite a sore ankle, mm. uh, made it up and decided she wanted to carry on. Um, and she was, you know, well, she was here. It's just an ankle. We're going to get there. There was so many of us to help support and make it happen as well. Um, but, yeah. Keep on keeping keep on. Keep on keeping on, yeah. yeah. And now we get to pitch two, KT, of your team. You leading pitch two. Mm-hmm. Okay. From the, from the stance, um, you say that you kind of went maybe in the wrong direction. How did, how did that happen? Uh, so Mano actually we exchanged gear and then he said hey do you want to look into the root guide to make sure that you're going the right way and I said no I know exactly where I'm going I'm going left and then up and he said yes so that's what I did <laughs> I think that Mano didn't need the route either because <laughs> I was waiting for him to actually say something hey you need to move a little bit more left or mm. you know you're too high or something so that didn't come that I was expecting. Okay. Okay. And starting starting the pitch, um, what was the protection like? Um, it was very easy terrain, I would say. There was lots of cracks. You could put gear in pretty easily. And then I just went up more than left. And I was wondering that the route actually got quite hard at a point, And I thought, hmm, this is not a 14 anymore. <laughs> Am I on the right route? Did I miss something in the briefing? And uh, so I got a little bit too high and I realized, oh, okay, uh, I c- there's no way I'm going to tra- traverse out now. Uh, and I was looking into this overhang and it looked very brittle rock and I didn't want to touch it. And then I made the decision to climb right and then traverse out, but that didn't work. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I almost actually down climbed and thought, oh, maybe I should look at the root guide again. But I never back like back out of climbs, except it's not climbable. And the route that I was going for was climbable. Mm. But definitely a bit harder than you expected it to be. Yeah, but uh, I know that my sport climbing grades are pretty high. So I thought, oh, I can climb a 16. I've climbed a 19 on tread before climbing out of a original route so I wasn't worried about it okay and how high did you come before you traversed or tried to go around the overhang how far yeah was it three pieces four pieces before the traverse yeah uh it was a few meters up higher than yeah I think you from from a, a sort of ledge where you started going up, there were about four pieces. Oh. Yeah. Which is quite, quite high. Yeah. Um, in trad terms. About four pieces, well-placed pieces that were all there, mm. stitched together nicely. Um, but quite high up. I'd say at that point, you were maybe eight meters above the ledge. Oh. Yeah. How did it feel climbing in such uncharted territories? I was very nervous, to be honest. Uh, just setting up the fixed lines was very intimidating. So climbing that sea stack was, was something else. It wasn't something that I was experienced with. 
So I was hoping to actually acclimatize to the environment before climbing the sea stack, mm. which we sadly didn't do. Mm. Okay. And when you get nervous, how does your body express um, your nerves? Like my palms get quite sweaty, for example. Yeah, I would get sweaty as well, my palms, but not too much. I would actually just freeze on the rock mm. and just think what are my next moves. Because Mano was watching me very carefully when we spoke, and he said, I didn't see you panic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like panicking on the <laughs> I just <Okay>. freeze up. <laughs> okay. And then you ended up taking a bit of a fall. Mm. Not so. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Okay, so uh, as I went climbing right, trying to uh, make up the route that I was on, uh, I even tested the rock, make sure that it's solid. Like, and did you knock it or? Well, I pulled it on it. Okay. I was like, it's a big rock, it should be fine. Uh, and then it, as I put my both hands on, did a pull up on the whole rock came out of it. And I was like, whoa. And then I just saw the sky, and then I hit two rocks. And then the rope caught me. And I thought, yes, I saw two solid anchors. And I was so happy about my face. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the the rock that came out, how big would you say? I didn't it? see it. You didn't see it. it. It was it was a couple of microwaves that came tumbling down. Wow. Yeah. And they splintered and fractured into multiple big pieces. And luckily we were all climbing. So it's all a sort of diagonal approach with the face facing the mainland and we were kind of on the sort of overall arete of this thing. Okay. So none of those blocks came anywhere near us. They all went very clear of us, mm. which was, yeah. And clear of yeah. your belayers and the yes, stars below. Yes, yes, Okay. Yeah. What, what did it feel like to be, you, were you still holding on to the rock while it was falling? Uh, well, it came loose as I fell. Okay. It just kind of flew over my head, luckily. Okay. So... Yeah, you're just in the air for a while until the rope catches you. Like, I had no doubt. I trusted Mano to relay me. I had no trust issues or anything. I knew the rope will catch me. Mm. I trusted the gear and everything, so it was fine. What was the piece that caught you? Um, What do you mean, what piece? The cam. Cam, yeah, Mm. two cams. Okay. Mm. Okay. I'll never forget that sound of crumbling rock, like, behind me, because I was... We were belaying and trying to get Michelle sorted. She was coming up to that stance after having hurt her ankle. Mm-hmm. And Katie was behind. And uh, then you just hear crumbling rock and crashing, smashing, and you just, yo, everything changes. Did um, you scream? Did I scream? No. No. <laughs> no. There's no time to mm. do that. No, no screaming. Okay. So the... Did you invert? Did you go upside down with the rock falling over you or not? No. No. I was hanging the ropes and I wasn't hanging like I usually do Mm. when I fall or just hanging the ropes. I was more on a horizontal plane and my back was so sore that I tried to not flip upside down. I tried to stay sort of in the plane and then I saw a ledge and I thought, oh, I have to get down there, I have to get down there. So, okay. That was. Why was your back sore? Had you injured it on the fall? Yeah, I hit two rocks on the way down, so that, uh, yeah, kind of hit my base of the spine. Okay. 
And has it caused injuries like later on or? Well, I fractured my coccyx, mm-hmm, the tailbone. Okay. So yeah, that would have explained the pain that I was in. And I hurt my ankle as well. I smashed it in the, on a rock. So there were these um, protruding flakes, flat-topped flakes, about a meter and a half below where she was. And she full impact landed on that, on her tailbone, before the rope had been able to take. Because, of course, when you're climbing diagonally, there's a lot more slack in the rope than you're used to with a vertical sport climb, for example. And so when Katie took the fall, she impacted fully on that and then came off of that as the rope was catching her Mm. and then kind of slid down a bit more before she came to rest. So there was a full impact before you were properly caught. Um, Yeah, and that's when we all then came to to realize what had happened and turned around to see Katie hanging there in shame, invisible distress. Yeah, it was a scary moment. Yeah. Mm. Was it a scary moment for you? Yeah, I mean, I took falls before, but I usually don't hit anything. So, yeah, it was something new Mm. experience. Can you tell us what was going through your mind when you got caught by the rope hanging there in pain? Uh, I was quite happy that I was still hanging. (laughs) Not that the cans would come out or the rope got cut or anything. Mm. And I had a... I had a direct line to Marno and Nathan. They had these blank expressions, and I thought, ooh, they're panicking. That's not good. Let me not speak to them. And then I heard Michelle shouting, are you okay? And that's, uh, that voice sounded really panicking as well, and I thought, ugh, okay. <laughs> and then I saw Stephen. He was very calm, and he wasn't panicking. That definitely helped. You know, he just knew what to do. It just went into that. Mm. As a first responder, because you were not only a guide and the leader of your own team, but also a first responder to the situation, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? It's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible both contraction of time but extension of time. Things happen very quickly and then seem to also go on forever. So in your mind, your first thought is, this is a very serious accident. This could be really serious. There's a lot going on. But then you very quickly sort of stop dealing with all of those what ifs and what it could be and say, this is the situation, this is happening, like push play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your, your first response obviously um, is, is safety. Is she safe? Are we safe? Is everyone else safe? Is the environment clear? Is it safe? Can I get to her? Safely. Were you still at the stance? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What, did so, you have a climber climbing on pitch two already? No. The only person climbing at that point was Katie. Okay. Um, we were kind of dealing with um, Michelle's ankle and making mm. sure she was okay and chatting to her and all of that. And um, when Katie fell, so she was about she was I'd say six meters away from the stance horizontally and up a little bit. Um, well, that's where a ledge was, and then she was a good three meters above that ledge, um, hanging in space. And so, yeah, when that happened and you see what's going on, everything's fine, normal falling rocks. Um, I got onto belay to lead climb. I was already set up to climb. So my goal was, all right, guys, lower Katie to the ledge, 
I'm going to lead myself across to the ledge and I'm going to build an anchor, clip in safety and go from there. So, you know, you take these sort of bite-sized chunks. This, mm. is, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. Gert, who was there, also kind of went into game mode and he'd started thinking about what to do with everyone at, at, um, uh, at the stances and everything. But it's once everything's safe and clear and has it freed, get to KT and you do your, you know, you, you kind of assess the situation and you do what first aid you can. And, and then, what was your preliminary first aid assessment? Well, my, my first serious worry was head or back injury mm. after a fall like that. Um, and when Katie was down on the ground and with a very rapid, because it didn't, like a sort of rapid assessment, called it the, what's it, rapid trauma, um, there was very clearly uh, a sore back, mm. pain in the lower back. Um, and also then pain on her ankle. But there was nothing else. There was uh, you had some grazes and scrapes and stuff on your face, but there was no other bleeding, no other pain internally, nothing like that. So it was very much like, all right, it's a back injury, but we don't know what. So then it's make sure that Katie is stabilized and still and comfortable and not having to move. So building a rig in order to support her in that sense, hold her in place, keep her comfortable. Um, How comfortable can one really be if you've shattered your coccyx? (laughs) The ledge that I was on, there was some sort of grassy bush that was growing, so it provided some sort of insulation and uh, comfort. Yeah, Yeah. that was lucky. You know, you think of the little things, right? Because it could have been on in a much worse scenario Mm. where it could have been. So we were lucky to have that ledge. Uh, we long? got we got very comfortable on that ledge. How long did you have to hang out? Uh, the helicopter arrived at four o'clock that afternoon, so, so it was a full three day. O'clock. Three o'clock. Three, three o'clock. And the fall happened at. And the fall happened. Half past eight. Half past eight. Yeah. In the morning. In the morning, yeah. So you hung out with a with a. Yeah. That's a for a full work day. A full work day, yeah. Wow. And and the the sun came over. So it was so I, I built a really nice shady rig thing and we hung blankets and stuff over to just keep her out of the sun and then were it was we made some pretty genius rigging things to like hold her leg up and prop this and hold that and but you got to also keep yourself busy and active and making decisions and doing things and being positive and saying, okay, what about this now? What about this now? Mm. Let's do this. Any small activity, doesn't matter how trivial it is, but you you do stuff to keep you busy and making decisions because that's what's important. The moment you stop and stop making decisions, stop doing things is the moment your brain runs away and then starts thinking about all the things that could go even worse, whatever. Mm. So we made a pretty comfortable ledge um, and then we decided, well, look, we need to get everyone else onto the mainland. So now you've got to you know, reduce further incidents and, and minimize other risks and hazards. So only essential people left with KT, um, enough people to make a climbing team for when KT gets extracted. Because we decided very early on, knowing that it's a back injury, that we needed a helicopter. Mm. So in the profile we put together to call rescue, which we gave to... Uh, Michelle, who diligently took down everything and kind of assumed that role of, of, you know, writing down what needed to happen for the people on the mainland. We wrote the whole profile of what had happened. Um, 
uh, where we were. Well, we didn't, you know, all of that stuff was in the sort of briefing pack that people had with them. And what is it that you have to tell if you now phone AMSAR? Yeah. What is it that you have to tell them? So there's 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 the basics, and then there's some ones which are a little bit more obscure, which people can forget about. But the basics are what has happened, where has it happened, who has it happened to, and the who is is name, age, gender. Um, any medical conditions, that kind of a thing. Um, what is the weather like on site, and who is on site um, in the area? And then, and what do you sort of, you know, what do you need? Are you guys? Um, is the patient so uh, badly injured that it has to be a helicopter extraction, or is the patient? Um, able to recover and maybe be walked out with guidance, you know, what kind of resources do we need to dispatch? Mm. Obviously, people can't make those decisions if they don't know what's going on. Um, so really just your, your patient information pack of who, what, when, how, whatever is, is very important. And you, you fill it with as much detail as you can. I think I gave Michelle quite a lot of information. Um, okay. And then we said, yeah, you guys look so... And then Marnu led them out. So Manu took, because he was the next most experienced climber. Um, and he then guided, and he was part of the rigging team the day before. So he guided everyone down, abseil down, back across onto the mainland, and then up the handrail route, mm. up into the mainland. And we had, then we gave one radio to that team. And we said, guys, get up onto the top of the mainland, stay in visual range, in radio range, and then make these cell phone calls. Yeah, and then everyone, it was amazing actually how everyone started into their roles and really pulled together. It was it was quite something because they made the whole process really smooth and efficient. And I think we felt like we were sort of in control the whole time of it. Um, I, I think you could probably speak more to that about how you felt. Yeah, in the everything situation. was very smoothly. I wasn't doing anything. I was like, wow, I was up to date. And they checked in, they radioed us, like this is what's happened. So yes, everything went very well. How did you keep yourself busy on that ledge? Um, well, Steve was there and he had to entertain me. He wasn't very good at it. Chad <laughs> <laughs> also took over once. He was also not very good at it. <laughs> he was very nervous, constantly looking out, where's Steve? Am I doing it the right way? <laughs> yeah. But it was nice that they were there. We only realized we could play music like an hour before the helicopter arrived. <laughs> yes. And then once we started, Katie was listening to one of the playlists and then she actually fell asleep and was just like lying there. And I'm like, oh, I need this had happened earlier because I have to wake her up in five minutes. There's a helicopter coming. <laughs> Could you feel the pain that whole time? Well, once I was lying still, it was it actually subsided. So there was, I think, two hours after the fall where... Well, I just wanted to check, hey, is the pain still there? And that's when I went, then I, went and I moved. And I thought, oh, let me just absolutely out of this. And then Steve said, no, I already called the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, 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 was a, uh, there was a time when you were quite keen to, to sort of get yourself out. Um, so we said, all right, well, let's, let's test this a bit, you know, like let's see. So we kind of see the pain here, no, not feeling much. Describe your pain out of 10 and it was quite low. But as soon as she made a move to sort of try and sit up, mm. it ramped up to an eight. And I was like, you see, you don't want to go anywhere because you're going to try and abseil and then this is going to happen to you when you're abseiling and then we have the helicopter's now been cancelled and now we have to call them back. Mm. Like the, the game plan is in play. Mm. 
Mm. Like, let's just trust in it. Mm. I was very, 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 yeah. Um, it would have been an absolute nightmare to try and, and do it ourselves, get Absol out and everything like that. Mm. It would have been possible. We'd had this been 30 years ago. We would have had no choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to do those things. Yeah. But we had a choice. Mm. And you also had no idea what the extent of the injury was. Exactly. Any one of those movements could have made it significantly worse. Yeah. So she was totally immobilized and still, which had its own issues in terms of, you know, getting you get very uncomfortable when you lie still for a while. So we were doing adjustments every 20, 30 minutes or so. Okay. Something to do, at least. <laughs> um, but in those adjustments, it really did seem like it was okay and, and there was a time we were like okay well this injury might not be so bad it could have just been you know muscle sprain mus- um, you know bruising your bone that kind of a thing just the hard shock impact of it could be that kind of pain mm. um, but you're still very very cautious because you just don't know mm. it's a back injury so the helicopter arrives who meets us yeah so the um, it was the time of the KZN floods so there was quite a few helis in Durban. Um, they were based at Virginia Airport. So they had to get a helicopter from Durban to fly to Peter Maritzburg to pick up Mountain Club rescuers, heli-trained medic and technical crew in Peter Maritzburg. And they had then they refueled in Peter Maritzburg and then flew with long-range tanks down to Cathedral Rock. And they arrived at four. Three. Three. <laughs> Three. Well, I, why I'm thinking four is because I was back on the mainland at four. That's the number that stands on in my mind. Yeah, okay. and then they, they came in. Um, How did they get you out of off the ledge? So um, they flew in. They did a circuit to just check out the area. They knew that there was myself and Gert on the ledge who were heli trained rescue members. So they were quite confident that they could lower a stretcher to us and we could do a lot of the work for them. Um, but they still opted to send a technical and a medical down with a stretcher onto the ledge. So they did their circuits. They then hovered in nice and slow, came in above us. It's always a bit risky because you don't know what that downwash is going to bring down. So we were all kind of shielding. Then they lowered um, the medic down. The medic was just with her pack. Uh, she got to the ledge. I handed her safety. She got to work with Katie, um, checking in, making sure she was, you know, all okay. She gave you some pain meds and those various things. And then Simon came down with the uh, stretcher. Mm. He got to the ledge. And then it really was just a, a mat. Then the BK went and landed. Um, and The BK? The BK-117, the helicopter. Okay. So it's a, a military chopper that we have. Um, we packaged Katie on this tiny ledge. Um, but there's now five people there. There's now five people Medic, on the ledge. the other guy, two of you, you and yeah. Kat, and then Katie. And Katie, yeah. On a ledge the size of? Uh, probably this couch. So what is that? Two meters, two meters by a meter. Two meters by a meter, yeah. No, not, yeah, two meters length by a meter and sloping down away from you. So there was very little space for the stretcher. Mm. Um, so we'd hooked up the stretcher to our safety lines. By this stage, we had really an amazing amount of rigging set up to make everything safe. Um, got Katie onto the stretcher. And then 
Um, what is it yeah. like to be on one of those stretches? I was really ex- uh, excited for a vacuum mattress and yeah. one of these Stokes stretches. But then when I saw it, I thought, oh. Didn't get that. Then I'm up to date. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, obviously with, with our... Um, with our stretcher setups in Gauteng, we have certain things and that's what we train with and are used to. And obviously you volunteer as a patient all the time. So both myself and Katie have been in these things. So we know what to expect. And that's what Katie was expecting. <laughs> and it's not what she got. She essentially got a spine board with, um, we then used jerseys and everything that other people had left with us to make it comfortable and proper up and everything. Mm. Um, Having yeah. been a trained member yourself, um, did it, did you find that it made the mental preparation for it easier because you knew what was coming? It was less of the unknown, or were you? Did you know what was coming and that made you anxious? Uh, I think a little bit of both. I was a little bit relaxed with the pain medication, <laughs> and then, but I was dreading the hoist that was about to happen because I've never done that before. It was actually terrifying me out, and I was very happy that the medic was hoisting both of us up at the same time and not just the patient so it was you and the medic being hoisted together yes Yes. okay and how how was that did it cause you pain did it were you like kind of flying around a little bit well you're flying but you're a little bit turning all the time and I know when you go if you spin too fast that is dangerous Mm. (laughs) so I was really worried about that but uh, everything went well and I'm yeah, I got up into the helicopter. And then so we, yeah, we had a, a tagline, which is what's used to prevent the spinning mm-hmm. of a stretcher. So a tagline is a soft line, so it's not something that can get stuck. It has a low breaking point, but it's it allows you on the ground to control it from spinning out. But it only really works when you can get away from the center of gravity line and off to the side, let's say 20 meters directionally away. I was having to use the tagline from pretty much directly below the stretcher. Mm. So if it did get into a spin, it would have been very difficult to get out because all you can do is kind of okay. try and pull on that rope. But, you know, you're then pulling on a stretcher, which is attached to a hoist and a helicopter. So we were just very lucky that it wasn't a very big hoist. Oh, I suppose it was about 30 meters or so. Um, but there was no spin and the jockey was quite experienced in being able to, you know, put her arms out and stuff and manage the downwash. So I think you got up with a very little, very yeah. little spin. Were you mm. able to contribute during the hoist or not really? Were you in pain and strapped and were you just full on patient? No more MSR. Oh, from the moment she felt there was, she was patient and not MSR. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and was that because of the pain or? Um, yeah, maybe a bit. Yeah, pain definitely, and there's nothing else to do. I mean, you just got to accept that this happened and just mm. go with it. Okay, and so now you hoisted into the helicopter, and then what? Uh, they dropped us off on the mainland to get Simon, the tech member, and then Steve and Gert as well. And then they picked me off from mainland, uh, and then we flew to Durban, to the hospital. Okay. So you went to the hospital with the tech and the medic, not, no one from the team that you had um, been right. expeditioning with. Yeah, so yeah. they were left at Cathedral Rock and then just the MSR team and I were flown to Durban. Okay. And did a member of your family meet you in Durban? or uh, A day later, yeah. Okay. So you were in, alone in the hospital for a 
a while. It was just one night. I mean, I arrived, what, half past 6 p.m.? Okay. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. Mm. I had very nice nurses. <laughs> <laughs> so we also had, uh, this is the beautiful thing about MSAR, is because we had to contact the Johannesburg rescue team because KZN's number was not working, um, there was a, a glitch there. I still haven't found out why. But Marnie ended up calling Joburg anyway. With Joburg being activated and them knowing that there were Gauteng rescue members um, involved, um, they really pulled out all the stops in making sure that it was dealt with properly. So much so that Andrew Sheehan, who knows some of the net care nurses and management at the hospital, asked them to please check in on Katie as often as they could and make sure she was okay and everything. So there was there were people looking out throughout the whole process. It was wonderful. What do you do if you phone MSAR and they don't answer? So the the Joburg team, we have two numbers. And if one is not answering, the other one certainly should. We test them every week or so to make sure they are working. And how it works is there's a rescue organizer who is assigned to that number. It changes between people as we go. Um, but that's a direct line to their cell phone. So there's a chance that they don't answer, but then you have the other number um, and should you not be able to get through for some reason, which is it really is quite rare, you should always have other numbers of whether it be ambulance or the police or um, even just the administration or management of the area you are in or somewhere that you can call to say this has happened. And then you can say to them, look, you need to get hold of Mountain Club Search and Rescue or Mountain Search and Rescue. And then those people have the resources to go online and find mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I was talking to a party who had been hiking in the Drakensberg and they also tried to contact the KwaZulu-Natal uh, Mount Search and Rescue and they also couldn't get through to them. It seems like a recurring really? situation. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So um, would you advise for um, the climbers out there to then call their local... Uh, definitely. Sections? I think that if you are part of a local section which has its local rescue team, you really should have those numbers and, and be able to call them and they they will sort you out or, or make the connections, which our Joburg team did with the KZN guys. Mm. Um, but it's a very good idea to have your own section plus whatever section you are visiting. And then you've got a wide variety. Mm. Yeah. Okay. How does your family feel about climbing? Katie. They think I'm crazy. <laughs> and the more adventure that I have, the better it is. They don't quite understand that either. Okay. But you've been climbing now for a while. Have they always felt like that? No, they actually tried it out with me. They said, ah, let's see what's going on in your head. Let's, let's do it. So my little brother, he's also climbing, but only in the gym. But he's enjoying it very well. Much and then my older brother, I took him out climbing as well. He only likes to climb indoor, and I took him clawing once. He was totally freaked out. <laughs> he doesn't like it at all. <laughs> Which where did you go clawing? Um, clawing. That's not an easy clawing. Yes, <laughs> I went down there for the first time the other day. And it's it's epic out there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and he actually had to abseil first that day because I took my dog Luca abseiling, and I wanted I needed an extra person to just check the setup. So he had to do it first, and I think that was the moment he was freaked out by it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and how about now? How do they feel about climbing now after your accident? 
uh, they don't really care. They just, as long as I enjoy my life, it's all good. Okay. Have you been into the outdoors again since your accident? Yes. In August, I went to the United States to visit my parents. And we did lots of hikes there. And yeah, it was really nice to be out on the trail, but not climbing. <laughs> okay. Um, will you be climbing again? In the future, definitely. I'm, still gonna, I'm gonna keep all my gear mm. just so it's there, um, but not for now. I think I'm just gonna take a break and do something else. Okay. Um, the thought of climbing does it make you afraid? What's the thing that you think is encouraging you to take a break? Well, I lost the spirit for climbing a few years ago, and also I thought I'm gonna do one more big trip and then uh, do something else. So it was already there, but um, I climbed long enough. I mean, hmm. how long can you climb for? <laughs> I hope for forever. <laughs> forever <yeah. laughs> Please make it be forever. <laughs> um, I have so many other goals, and I'm out. I'm active all the time, mm. and I have lots of hobbies. But I can't do everything at once, and mm. I really do want to do something else now. Mm. Um, have you found that there there are lingering injuries now in your next um, active pursuits? Do you still have back pain? Do you struggle with rotation? Anything like that? No, I've seen a physio every week since the accident. Okay. Uh, so my back has been healing very well. I do feel it in some movements. And then my ankle is, what's wrong with the ankle? But it's still quite sore, but I can walk and do everything. Okay. So I'm not sure what's wrong with it there. And have there been any kind of financial effects coming from the accident? Maybe medical bills? I know I've got a stack of medical bills after this operation that I wasn't expecting. No, I'm fortunate enough to have medical aid and that the rescue was for free. I think that made a huge difference. Is rescue for free for everyone? Uh, if I mean, Mountain Club is the rescuers. It's all a volunteer organization, so it's all free. If there are resources such as a helicopter that needs to come fetch you, and it's a military chopper, SAF chopper, then uh, that is free. Yeah. And so if it's not a SAF chopper, you best have medical aid. Otherwise, it's a very expensive bill for a helicopter. Okay. Yeah. How does one know? You can find out from your medical aid provider if they do. There's often clauses and things which talk about um, travel or transport to hospital. And it, it might say there, you know, like helicopter and stuff. But it, more often than not, a hospital plan, from my understanding, um, I can't say for all of them, but mm -hmm. they do include emergency helicopter transport. So, if, for example, you, you're in a car accident and you, net care is transporting you from A to B. Mm. Um, that's included. So if a helicopter needs to fetch you from Michalisburg and take you to Mill Park, it's the same thing. Um, I mean, more, how do you know that the chopper that's coming to fetch you is a military chopper or a private you one? You probably won't know unless you are chatting to your rescuers who are there on site and you say, look, what is coming through? And then they'll, they might say this or that or they don't know. Um, sure. But it's often, I mean, it's a scramble to get whatever resources are available. And unfortunately, in South Africa at the moment, the availability of, of Air Force choppers is in serious decline. So it's the, the private industry is having to really take over in that sense, which means things like really effective medical 
aid is even that much more important. Not like it wasn't important before, but it is significantly more important now. Do you know how many climbers are out there climbing without medical aids? It's is it a lot? Shocking. Really? Yes. I like to ask questions. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, but I love to walk around and chat to people. And there are a crazy amount of climbers that are out in the cliffs, that are even out sport climbing, out doing things with no medical aid. Mm, okay. Guys, if you're listening, please get medical yeah. aid. <laughs> please. I highly recommend yeah, it. Highly recommend it. <laughs> Five stars. Uh, Katie, what would you say have you learned from this experience? Um, that experienced climbers can also have accidents, not just inexperienced ones, because they have all the skills to push the boundaries. And especially when they go to unknown places to explore. Uh, it's also quite handy when you're going with people who have experience in climbing or rescue because they just kick in the gear and they just know what to do without you telling them what to do when you don't know what to do. <laughs> or you just need a little break to, to like think about what just happened to you. But it was also very interesting to see everything from the patient's perspective. So it was a really good insight. Do you think it will change the way that you approach rescue? Yes. How so? Putting yourself in the patient's shoes and maybe but you're going to be more, you're going to show more compassion and empathy while you're doing things, kind of everything to the best practice standard. Mm. Steve, what did you say? Have you learned from this experience? Um, I think that it's it's very important to um, really stick to your safety principles and put put things in place which you stick to, um, and the reason why you put them in place. So um, to understand that. Um, this is a very far away, isolated environment. You bet you must have your uh, rescue and evacuation stuff sorted and briefed so that everyone knows. I had it all very sorted, but I don't think I had it fully briefed with everyone as to what processes might happen. Um, but it was all there and it was, you know, we, we had like the document which was on people's phones and they could open it and those sorts of things. But um, to have spent the brief a brief document. Well, like, yeah, so, you know, this is this is the number to call. These are the coordinates. This is where we are. Um, but to have gone a little bit more in depth in a, an actual briefing with people to say like, all right, we're going onto this thing. Um, more than just a briefing of what the climbing is and everything. It's like, guys, what are we going to do if something goes wrong here? And actually sit down in a very casual environment and talk about it in a round table environment and say, here's an opportunity to ask questions here's an opportunity for us to discuss it. Very likely something will pop up that might not have been thought about. And that's a wonderful way to then discuss it and make everyone feel comfortable and safe. So that's what I definitely would have done differently is to say, yes, because I've done the, the homework on it doesn't mean that I've briefed it effectively enough and efficiently enough with everyone. And then it would have made people more comfortable and also would have given more opportunity for people to say if they were not comfortable or, oh, 
oh, wow, now you're talking about all these crazy things. I'm kind of having second thoughts. If that's a possibility, I don't know if I want to go and do it anymore. Yeah, because now there's a fine line between making everyone prepared for what may come and freaking them out. Yeah. And making an accident more likely because now you have nervous climbers. Yes. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And so that's definitely one, you know, you don't want to, you want to have that, but you also want to have the reality laid out on the table and people make their own decisions on it. And, mm. and whilst uh, we'd done a lot of work on training for it, so we, we, we made sure, you know, we, we went through all of the processes of this is how we're going to abseil, this is how we're going to ascend, this is how we're going to set up ropes. And we could have done more of that, um, but we did sufficient amounts of it. But I think once we were there on site um, to have spent more time as Katie said, getting used to the environment before just jumping into it uh, would have definitely been a very, very big one. And yeah, we, we also, we didn't stick to our itinerary itinerary, and we we got started on the trip very late, which put everything on the back foot. And that kind of just one thing led on to another of making the, the time pressure get more and more and more and more. And I think in a way that that contributes to what we call in rescue the Swiss cheese model where like a block of Swiss cheese has holes all over the place but they don't line up but there can be just the right moment where you line it up and that suddenly that hole is it's right there so lots of little things and that stuff can be traced back to when you leave Joburg three or four hours late um, and then you get two blowouts on the way down and then end up having to delay in Kokstad because there's no spare parts on the Sunday. And then you only get to your site two days when you're meant to be there. So now you're like just gunning for the summit and you're actually like, whoa, 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 what's more important? Mm. Everyone to enjoy this and be safe and comfortable or getting the summit. And I think those lines can start to get blurred a bit. Um, you get task focused on the, on the summit. Mm. And I think personally, I let some of those things uh, fall aside a bit in my determination to get the summit for the group and then was only able to get the summit for some of the people on the group. And, and that's, that's something that is, is a problem because we were all meant to be there to get it and all be safe. And that was H- my responsibility. Hindsight, in fact, is twenty twenty. though. Mm. I mean, those decisions that you made in those moments, you made... Um, considering all of those things that you did put in place and the systems that you did put in place, not so. Yeah, I think uh, very much hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, I, I've done a very extensive debrief document for myself to highlight where all those points were as a learning opportunity, um, and I can see very clearly you can trace how things. Not necessarily like it was building up to Katie having an accident. You know, there's no way that could have been predicted that rock is going to blow off at that time. But the contributing factors of the time pressure of the environment of all of that and because things were rushed, there were blind spots. Mm. And those blind spots should have been a moment where I said, Mm-mm. like we, we, we're calling it, we're stopping it. We're not carrying on with this until we are more comfortable with there being less things. And those are hard decisions also to make because you're like, okay, we're not doing this now or whatever. Um, but you need to be very strict with those things. You need to be aware of it, you need to be strict with it, and you need to be consistent with it. Have you yeah. changed the way that you will manage the Pondu experience going forward? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, w- with taking out groups um, to do expeditions, um, 
there are there are definitely things I'm doing differently. As I said, I wrote down that debrief document, which now informs most of the things I do now. So that mm-hmm. it's in in one way, it was it was a very very expensive school lesson, <laughs> uh, but it could have been more expensive. And so I've taken all of it into account to figure out how to do things way better for future events. Mm. Um, and it's yeah, it's stuff that you know. Has, wasn't taught or wasn't shown. It's stuff that you can only like super unique things that can happen on these trips. But it's about the process of how you do it all and how you set it up. Mm. That's why experience mm. in these environments yeah. is so yeah. Um, important. Yeah, mm. and and just to then learn from other people's mistakes so you don't make them yourself is also very important. On that note, have mm. you made that document available to other people if they wanted to learn from it? So if, if I mean it's it's very much personal and tailored to my own operation and to the my own business so it's not immediately shareable but I'd certainly be willing to take people through the you know the, even the time frame the processes all of that stuff it's a very very specific document which kind of shows how it happens and I'd be very willing to share it with people if they're interested has um that affected because you also sit on on the MCSA as the MSAR committee yeah, member. Yeah. Has this experience influenced the way that you manage MSAR in general? Well, firstly, I don't manage MSAR as the MCSA committee. I'm the liaison with MSAR. There is a separate committee in the search and rescue Gauteng which manages and runs it, and I'm kind of like the go between between those two organizations now. I'm, I'm sitting on the MTC committee as a representative of MSAR. I don't run MSAR. That's done by very capable people who can put a lot of time and effort into doing it. Um, but it certainly has changed, as do all of these sorts of incidents when they happen. You evolve and adapt to change your own operation in these environments. Mm. And so that experience on the ledge with Katie for that full day has given me huge insights into how to actually be stuck on a ledge with a patient for a full day. I'm just so grateful that it was someone I knew quite well (laughs) (laughs) and that we could share a quiet moment of saying we are going to come back and climb this one day, which we have decided today is going to be next year. And probably February. <laughs> Katie, are you are you are you agreeing to this? No, no. <laughs> Maybe so too soon. Okay, <laughs> we'll decide a date. Yeah, but we said we're not going to let this. So we we did the summit the next day. Yes, myself, Marnu, and Gert went up and got the summit, cleaned the gear, and it was quite a sobering experience to go through this environment, which just the day before was the site of such a serious incident. Did you have to follow the route? that Katie took? No. So we, we got up to where the ledge was and then the route with, that Katie went up, we like, we're not climbing that, we're going to get that on the abseil on the way down, we're mm. going to clear it. So we went up this, the, the easy climb off to the left um, and made it up and then and got the gear down. But we are, so Katie and I decided that we're not going to let that mountain beat her and that when she is ready, not February, <laughs> um, <laughs> we will go back and climb it and get to that summit. Amazing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, to wrap up, mm. thank you so much for coming and Good sitting pleasure. on my thank couch. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm. How can we get hold of you and the Pondo experience? Is there anything coming up that we should know about? So there's, I mean, there's, there's always, always hikes going. If people are interested in organizing their own, any time, any day, we can organize and facilitate hikes. So if people want to get together a group and go down and do it, 
uh, whether it's one day, whether it's 10 days, whether it's five kilometers, whether it's 120 kilometers. Mm. Uh, we facilitate and organize all of that. Um, but then in terms of organized trips, um, we are trying to get a 10-day hike going over New Year's, which is going to be from Port Edward down to Port St. John's. And then in February, that's why I was suggesting February, <laughs> um, I will be down there for some abseil exploration stuff, which I'll be building a team for soon. And then in May next year, we're doing a horse riding trip down the coast as well. Um, all of this will be uploaded when it's available on pondoexperience.co.za. Um, or you can just um, contact me or find me on Instagram, Pondo Experience as well. Um, or ask around. I'm sure you'll find my number from someone. And yeah, that's that's it. So we have those three trips are the most immediate things coming up. If people want to get involved in those, they can. And just contact me and I'll give you all the information you need. Amazing. Mm. And Katie, having been through this experience with Steve, um, would you recommend it to people? <laughs> A nice fall on <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> uh, I think it's it depends what your intentions are and for your trip of course but yeah def definitely go for it uh, he's he's a very good mountain guide he knows what to do uh, he's very um, he's, he's well organized for all of these trips I think the yeah the cathedral rock climb is definitely um, not a regular one it was sort of you know occasional trip but most of the stuff we do is very benign hiking and canoeing and adventuring and stuff the the other end of this of the spectrum where we're doing the sort of climbing and abseiling is yeah much more specific and unique mm. yeah mm. okay thank you so much for joining us we are way over time as usual oh, always, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a climber's habit yeah <laughs> thank you cheers thank you if you enjoyed that podcast, send us some love by donating money or telling people about the Send Space podcast. Check out our Patreon for ad-free episodes and extra content. There's some good stuff on there. You can become a Patreon by one-off donation or regular contribution. It's totally up to you. Please get hold of us. All our info is on thesendspace.org. If you haven't noticed, we like to chat. Thanks for listening all the way until the end. We appreciate it. Don't forget your helmet and rate review and share this podcast.